Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. ever wonder who the little fella is that stops and talks to me on his way to Islands. And uh, I call him Coop. But uh, one Sunday, on a particular Sunday, I made a comment up here about one of my favorite members from days gone by. And Children's Church was dismissed, and he ran down and gave me uh, an embrace, and he said, I thought I was your favorite. <laughs> and uh, so if anybody asks, folks, uh, you are my favorite. <laughs> After Cooper. All right. <laughs> well, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We continue a series of Christmas messages, if you will. From 1 Timothy chapter 3, we started out with verse uh, 14, and for the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to be involved with um, verse 16. I entitled this uh, series of messages, A Christmas Carol. Last week, we looked at A Christmas Carol, Ecclesiology, what God says about the church, the message of the church in terms of its behavior and its Christ. Today we cover a Christmas carol, Christology, his terms of incarnation. I want to encourage you to be present next week. Next week we're going to have a whole lot of wonderful Christmas music. Is that correct, Jay? And um, we're going to emphasize missiology. We're going to preach from this text a Christmas Carol, missiology, our missions. And we're going to be showing you our partnership in South Dakota uh, for the next three years, we hope and pray, and uh, just what's going on up there and how we can help those missionaries. And we're going to have um, uh, one guest in person and something I'm still praying about, maybe a guest on video. But uh, anyway, we'll be preaching on that wonderful portion that you'll hear about in just a minute on missiology. And then the following week, we'll be preaching on Christology again, and we're going to look at his vindication or his subjugation. And we will 
see his great victory. Well, approaching Christmas Day, we're considering this great and marvelous text of Scripture. It thrills my soul every time I read it because it's just, it's just puts in capsule form the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. Verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That is the message of Christ. That sums it up. We could classify this as a Christmas carol uh, in our day and time because it is an early hymn of the church like we pointed out last week. And uh, I call it a Christmas carol because it just starts out talking about the incarnation which we're going to deal with today. But it can also be an Easter anthem. This is about Easter. Have you ever noticed the song that our choir just sang, it just uh, stood out to me uh, that the Christmas carols of the church that we sing in December and the anthems and the many of the, much of the Christmas music, if not all of it that I know of that's strong and biblical, do not leave Jesus at Bethlehem. They all get him grown. And they all get him to the cross. And then they all get him coming back in glory. Isn't that an amazing thing? They all get him resurrected. Every one of them. Let me, let me uh, highlight this for you and just show you how this is. It's universal. It came upon a midnight clear. You ever heard that song? That hymn? Edmund Sears wrote it, and this is what he said in that hymn. You, you sang it many times. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold when the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold. We're not in the age of gold right now. When peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. He got him out of the, the manger, got him to the cross, the empty tomb, and he's got him coming back in glory. Angels from the realms of glory by James Montgomery. Saints before the altar bending, watching long in hope and fear, suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. He got him off the cross, out of the, out of the manger, on the cross, in the grave, resurrected, and coming back in glory. Yes. It's not only our ancient and hymn writers of old that have captured this. I'm very blessed at First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs. I have a couple of poets that I claim as my own here at First Baptist. And um, one of them is our beloved Sue Verhoeven. Y'all know Miss Sue, sweet Christian lady. Hello, Miss Sue. She watches us every Sunday. And she wrote a poem and called, entitled, A Womb Became a Tabernacle. And she captured this just as the hymn writers did and just as our choir sang about a moment ago. 
Mary's womb became a tabernacle, a temporary holy of holies for God's only Son until that time when the Father would reveal to the world the Savior, the Holy One, who would redeem lost sinners from the penalty of death and set their souls forever free to enter the Holy of Holies, a separation that would no longer be. For through Christ's death and victorious resurrection, his shed blood made eternal atonement for man's sin, and by faith in this Savior, God's perfect sacrifice, believers could now enter in to the Holy of Holies, the place of God's glorious presence, and there forever be to fellowship with Him and praise His holy name for time and for eternity. Oh, mystery of mysteries. Didn't Paul say, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness? Well, of mystery of mysteries, the glory of glories, what a redemptive plan God graciously unfurled. When a womb became a tabernacle, the holy of holies through which salvation was brought to the world. Just like our hymn writers, she got him out of the manger, onto the cross, out of the tomb, up into glory, and coming back in victory. That is the scriptures of the Word of God that God gave the church. It is the church's song. It is the church's heart. When we preach on the incarnation, the people of God redeemed by the Lord know that it didn't just start, nor did it stop in Bethlehem's manger. It got up, and it showed us his glory, and it got him on the cross. It got him in the tomb. It got him resurrected. It got him ascended, and it got him returning in glory one day. We know what the Christmas story is all about because we know who is it is about. And it is his resurrection and coming again. Every message you preach on Jesus is about the Christmas story. But our text highlights this incarnation today, gets him to Bethlehem and what all that means and gets him grown and walking in his ministry on earth and then gets him to glory. Let's, let's look and see what it says. We're going to see some wonderful things here. Uh, first of all, the text says he was manifest in the flesh. This speaks to his incarnation. Manifest in the flesh. One thing about this verse, like many verses of the Bible, is every phrase is fully loaded. There's much underneath the tree for us. And we could spend a whole series on each one of these phrases. As a matter of fact, if I were to preach a whole series of messages on manifest in the flesh, I would begin in Genesis 3, 15. And we would just move our way through the Scriptures. And we would see what it means to be manifest in the flesh. But I'm not going to do that because you won't let me. You've got to get out of here and go eat lunch. You've got to go spend time with your family. And plus, I don't think I have the stamina to preach that long. And I need to go eat lunch. <laughs> so we're going to have a late lunch today. 
I want to tell you what, folks. Let me just give you one of the most wonderful presents under the tree in this one phrase that will bless your heart, that will thrill you to no end. Go back with me to chapter 1 of this pastoral epistle in verse 18. The scripture ought to be on the screen. Maybe not, but it says, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now unto the king, unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is invisible in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can't see him. He is a spirit. Yet in our text, the scriptures say he was manifest in the flesh. The word manifest means to make visible. Can't see him? Now you can. It does not mean to be created or to bring into existence. It is the word that means to make able to be seen, to make visible. The invisible God became visible. Colossians 1 speaks of the second person of the Godhead. It wasn't God the Father who became visible. It wasn't God the Spirit who became visible. It was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who became visible. He's the one we see. When God wanted us to see what he's like, he sent Jesus. The Son of God became visible for us, the second person of the Trinity. And Colossians chapter 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. There are thousands of blessings to unpack. Ephesians talks about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus. And this is one of them, and you open up. You ever get one of those gifts on, on, on a gag gift, and you open it up, a big box, and you open it up, and it's a smaller box? And then you open up that smaller box, and what happens? It's a smaller box. And then you open it up another time, and it's a smaller box. I got one one time, and they said, I, I, there's a lot of boxes, and I, I said, I don't have time for this. I'm moving on. I was kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge. And then they said, well, wait a minute. There's a Hickory Farm sausage log in there, and I kept going. <laughs> Amen. But I want to open this up and get all the way down to one of the boxes. This invisible God become invisible. I want to show you one of the most wonderful truths contained in the incarnation. And this should fill your heart with thanksgiving. If you're saved today and you know the Lord, you know you ought to be thankful when you come to church. And this is one reason that I'm about to show you that we are thankful, if not the first and primary reason we are thankful. One reason we get to come to church together. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read the first chapter where we found out the invisible God is invisible. And we read our text in chapter 3 and see that he is visible now. 
But if you go to chapter 6, the last chapter that Paul wrote to Timothy, he said in verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy, I'm telling you all these things and teaching you these things so you can be obedient to the Lord in the fullness of the Spirit of God and be without spot and unrebukable and, and stay that way and stay sound and stay on track until the Lord returns. And he says, which in his times he will show who is the blessed. Listen to what he says about Jesus who is the blessed and only potentate. I love that word, potentate. You thought you were the potentate of your lodge, but the Bible says Jesus is the only potentate. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. He's invisible, Timothy, uh, Paul told us in the first chapter of this epistle. And in the last chapter, he said he's also unapproachable. You cannot get to him. The invisible, unapproachable God is now visible and approachable in the incarnation. You can approach him. And if you know him personally, and he has done a regenerating work in you and you have been born again, you can approach him in worship today and you can approach him in prayer on Monday morning. I don't know about you, but that's a great time to pray Monday morning. You can pray anytime. And when you die, you will approach him to his throne and glory like our poet and our hymn writers have written about. But he is an approachable God. If you are saved, that should thrill your soul, motivate you to worship and give thanks. You can approach this invisible, unapproachable God. The ancient Israelites couldn't. If they touched the mountain, they'd die. But we can approach him. Look at the Christmas story. The shepherds approached him, didn't they? The shepherds approached him. And then we see the wise men approached him, the working class, if you will, and the wealthy class, humble Jews and humble Gentiles from the east approached him. Read his life, and what do you see? You see beggars approaching him. You see blind men approaching him. I love it when the blind men were saying, Jesus uh, son of David, have mercy on us. And his disciples says, get back. He ain't got time for you. And Jesus said, let him come forward. Amen. That's my Texas lingo. Get back. But Jesus said, no, come on. Let him approach. Lepers approached him. Have you ever seen a leper? I hadn't. But they approached Jesus. And Jesus Approach them. He's approachable. Great sinners have approached him. And he's approachable. I approached him. It was March the 1st, 1971. Down there in the middle of nowhere. 
And he approached me and said, you want to come to me? You want to approach me? Come on. Just like the star invited the wise men and the angels invited the shepherds and his very presence and his dignity and his love and his grace invited the beggar and the lepers. His Holy Spirit invited me. Well, I don't know if I can go. I'm a sinner. You say, well, you preacher, you were just a young kid. Let me tell you something. Did you know one of the end times damnable sins is disobedient to parents? I had committed over and over again one of the end time damnable sins that's going to dominate the age during the reign of the Antichrist. I was a sinner. I was old enough to know what a lie is. I was old enough to have a bad attitude. You ever met a kid with a bad attitude? You ever met a kid who's really generally has a good attitude then all of a sudden one day they have a bad one? Well, they have a bad one. And I approached him. And he saved me and forgave me and said, you've approached me the right way in faith, in repentance of your sin I just won't keep you with me. You don't have to leave. And maybe today I'll tell you, you can approach him. Have you ever committed a sin, done anything that was contrary to God's will? Have you ever, for one moment in your life, been without uh, acting like Jesus, been contrary to Jesus, been unlike him? Well, I want you to know he's approachable. And maybe... He's approaching you, and his spirit is drawing you, and you can approach him and receive salvation and be forgiven, and be forgiven of your sin. You can come to Christ today. He's approachable. In the revelation, we all get excited about the revelation. Everybody wants to know which side of his head the Antichrist parts his hair. But I want to tell you, you know, my favorite part of revelation is, is in the end when The Bible says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, come. The invitation of the Holy Spirit is come to Jesus. He's approachable. The invitation of the church ought to be the same as the Holy Spirit, inviting people, come to Jesus. And you can be saved. Who's your mission? Who are you going to say, come to Jesus? He's approachable. That's one of the thousands of blessings we have In the incarnation, he's approachable. The visible God is now seen in Christ Jesus. He is recorded, the living word is recorded in the written word, and he is approachable. Come now, let us reason together. That's what God says. Well, the next phrase says something quite interesting. It says, justified in the spirit. Well, Manifest in the flesh speaks of his incarnation. Justified in the spirit speaks of his vindication. There is a question concerning a fine point with this phrase, justified in the spirit. You might have a translation like mine that says justified in the spirit. You might have a a translation that says justified with the spirit. You might have a translation in your hands that say justified in the spirit. Or, or by the Spirit, or, be, or being with the Spirit. You say, well, which one's right? All of them are right. In context, 
They can be right. Some will say, well, when it says justified in the Spirit, that's referring to the Spirit that Jesus had. On the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And that's the spirit that Paul is talking about, that, that Jesus was justified in that spirit, without sin in that spirit. Could be. Could be. I don't have a problem with that. Others say it means that it was the Holy Spirit who justified him. And I'll be honest with you. I could preach it both ways. Some scholars tell you it is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way it could mean both. And if I were to get up here and preach it one way, you would say, amen. And then if I preach it like I'm about to, if you're alive and well, you're going to say amen. And so today I want to tell you, in my understanding, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Justifying him, justifying him. To justify means to make a declaration. It doesn't mean you do anything. The book of Romans says that we who know Christ and are born again and have approached him in humble faith and repentance of sin and confession and received his forgiveness and his grace to save us and do a work in us. It says we are justified by faith. And it is God who justifies us. It does not mean he does something. Now, God does do some things to you when you're saved. He baptizes you in the Spirit spiritually. He transports you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He changes your citizenship, spiritually speaking. He redeems you. He applies his blood, so that's what he sees. He sees the death of Christ on the cross rather than your sin. He forgives you. He regenerates you. He makes you a new person, gives you a new nature. All of those things you can't see, but he does them, and you see the results of it like the wind blowing the trees. But justification is not a work. Justification is a statement. It's a declaration. And for us, when God justifies us. It's as if God is saying about you, you are just as if you have not sinned. That's where the Christian is. You say, well, preacher, I have sinned. That's right, but God says, I see you as just as if you have not sinned. Now, I don't know about you, but that would make a Baptist say amen and an Episcopalian shout. <laughs> amen. Huh? If that doesn't heat up your grit, something wrong with you, folks. It's a blessing to be justified. But the Bible says Jesus was justified in the Spirit. Well, let's look at that for a few moments. When did this happen? Well, maybe it happened at his baptism. At his baptism, the Bible says that the Spirit came down in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven rang out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That voice from heaven declared him righteous from the point of his birth to the point of his baptism. That means Jesus went through the teenage years without a bad attitude. 
That means he lived the life that God intended for the sons of Adam to live from his birth to his baptism. But it was the Father justifying him. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. See, God is a triune God. Well, let's move forward a little bit. Maybe he had his transfiguration. You remember that? He took Peter, James, and John. They climbed on top of the mountain. And, and Moses and Elijah showed up. Remember that? How would you like to have been there? With my, well, no doubt I would have joined Peter, James, and John in the nap that they were taking. They were sleeping, and when they woke up, they were able just to get a glimpse of the end of it. And the Bible says, not knowing what to say, Peter started talking. You ever met anybody like that? Well, he starts talking, and he's wanting to build three tabernacles. He says, oh, we got Moses, the law man. We got Elijah, the prophet, uh, and we got you, Jesus, we got you, Lord. Let's build three tabernacles here. And a voice boomed from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So from his baptism to his transfiguration, he's justified. He hadn't sinned. He's justified. But that, again, is the Father's voice. It's the Father declaring him just. It's not the Holy Spirit. Well, let's move on. We come to some affirmations of the first person of the Godhead, the Father. Well, when did the Holy Spirit justify the incarnate Word? Well, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says it. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which, made, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and listen to this, and declared. What is justification? A declaration. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Spirit of God declared, justified Jesus at the resurrection. That is an incredible thing. The Holy Spirit declared him just at the resurrection. Now you say, well, what's so special about that? Oh, come on now. You know the Bible. This is incredible. Because the Bible says about Jesus on the cross, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me say that again. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who was justified, declared without sin, and indeed was without sin, he died. You don't die 
without sin. You don't die without sin. If you live your life and never sin, you're not going to die. You know what the problem is? You're going to die. But he who is without sin had no sin. He died. You don't die without sin. How remarkable is this? Sin is what brings death of all kinds. There's no death with no sin. If there's no sin, there's no death, none at all. Animals don't die. The planet doesn't die. You don't die. But sin brings death. That's what the Bible teaches us. The wages of sin is death. But he who knew no sin, he died. The invisible God who became visible, manifested in the flesh, he lived an impeccable life without sin, tempted in every way as we are, faced with the hard ethical decisions of life as we are, yet he knew no sin. So if he died without sin, he had to take somebody's sin on himself. Do you see the incarnation? Now listen to me. You're about to get excited. If you're saved, you're going to get excited. He died for someone. He died in someone's place. He had to, to, to die, he had to become sin. And he became my sin. And he became your sin. But that is not all. Three days later, what happened? The Holy Spirit of God justified him with resurrection splendor. That's wonderful. Preacher, this isn't Easter, it's Christmas. Didn't I tell you at the beginning of the message it's all the same? Yes. He rose again, and the Holy Spirit justified him by the resurrection. You know what that means? Jesus in his resurrection was just as if he had not sinned. In other words, once you're saved by Christ's blood and his sacrifice for you on the cross, your sin is in the grave because the resurrected Lord is just as if he hadn't taken your sin. That's called the eternal security of the believer. We Baptists believe that. And my goodness, I'm going to preach it. Oh, wonderful. And you can be declared just as if you've never sinned. And God will revive and regenerate your spirit. And he will begin to regenerate your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And one day, your body might be cold in the grave for many years, but I don't think it's too many more. One day, he will resurrect your body because you have been just as if you had not sinned declared by God Almighty. Amen. Does that make you happy? Yes. Now, folks, I, I, you know, I started cutting my teeth on East, Northeast Texas preaching in the, in the revivals and the, and the piney woods over there, and them old-timers would say, Amen. And every now and then they'd say, Bless God, hallelujah. 
Huh? But I moved over here to fancy Ocean Springs and I don't get enough of them. <laughs> Amen. Aren't you glad you're justified? Yes. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's build a tent and have a tent revival. Well, the next phrase says something else about all this. Seeing of angels. Now, the angels are seeing us right now. They don't know what we're doing because they've never experienced salvation. They've never been justified. Uh, when when, when the, the angels rebelled with Satan, God in his sovereign choice said, I'm not going to save them. But when man decided to follow Satan, God sent his sovereign choice, I'll save him. And so he sent Jesus not to be an angel, but he sent Jesus to be the second Adam and to take our sin, not the angel's sin. Aren't you glad you're not an angel? And so the angels that, that are still faithful to the Lord and forever will be, millions and millions of them, Gabriel and Michael, who knows? Michael may be watching what's going on in First Baptist Church just to watch old Jack worship. Who knows what angels are watching upon us now to see this great phenomena of people who get together and hear the word of God and hear the gospel and say amen and hallelujah and bless God, that's glorious. But the Bible says he was seen of angels. Timothy will tell us in chapter 6, verse 15, again, we referred to it a while ago, that Christ is the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What does this have to do with being seen of angels? It has everything to do with subjugation. Many other things, but today I want to talk about to you his subjugation, his incarnation, his vindication, now his subjugation. What does this have to do with subjugation? Well, the word may seen... You know what it means? To be seen, to observe, to see. So consider this. When did the angels see? And what did they see? Well, let's look at it. At his birth, maybe. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2 tells us about the birth of Christ. Luke tells us about it in detail as well. And they, the the, the Incarnation, that night of the birth of Christ that we sing about. Well, the angels saw that, but problem is that's not what they only, that's not the only thing they did. They also announced it. They also appeared before the shepherds in the Bethlehem fields and, and filled the sky and scared the starch out of the shepherds and then calmed them down and said, go find Jesus. He's approachable. See how it all connects? So... No, that, that can't be when they've seen angels. At his temptation, they, they had to stand back at bay and watch at his temptation. Well, I don't think that's it either because Matthew 4 says that the angels ministered to him. It's wonderful to know that when you're going through a heated time of temptation, intense time, that not only you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, but you have the angels ministering to you. Jesus did. So they did more than just see it. They, they ministered to their Lord. Well, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Maybe that's when they, they um, saw and viewed. No, 
They did more than that because one of the Gospels tells us that an angel, it's singular, one angel came perhaps and ministered to him, strengthened him. Isn't it wonderful that in prayer time when you're praying and you're burdened in prayer and your prayer is intense and should be that you have the Holy Spirit aiding you in prayer but you also have the angels ministering and strengthening you in prayer. So preacher, what about maybe the resurrection? We read about the angels at the resurrection. Well, I'm sure they saw it, but they did more than just see it because the Bible says in Matthew 28 that, um, well, I just want to read it to you. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon the stone. Amen. That's the rock and roll angel. I love that. Who rolled away the stone? An angel of God rolled away the stone. Which one? When you get to heaven, you're going to ask. So it wasn't at the resurrection where they just saw it. Not there. They had a part in that. They rolled away the stone. Throughout his life, the angels are present and active. So when did the angels just observe? When did they just watch and see something? You read the narratives of the cross, and there's no angel in sight. It was at the cross where they stood back and stayed away and just saw what would come about. No doubt they heard the hordes of Satan celebrating. They saw the viciousness and wickedness of men and they saw the grieving father who loves us so much but hates sin so much. He put it on his son for us. No angels. As a matter of fact, they were about to go to the cross. It was getting close after he had been ministered to by the angels in the garden of Gethsemane. They came to arrest him and Peter drew out his sword and went for the neck but missed and hit the ear. Remember that and cut off that man's ear and Jesus says, put your sword in this place, Peter. Don't you know? Don't you know I can call 12 legions of angels? I imagine when he said that, Michael said, let's go, let's go. And Gabriel said, he's not calling us now. Got to hold back. One angel said, don't you remember what we did to the Syrians? Let's go do that to that bunch of ungodly rabble right now and we'll spare his life. And Gabriel said, get back, get back, get back. We're not going there. We're not going to Calvary. We're not going to the cross. No angelic help. No friend. No heavenly father. No Holy Spirit when he became sin for us. Seen by angels. No help whatsoever. You know why he received no help? So he could give you all help. Now, preacher, what does that have to do with subjugation? Subjugation's a hard word. It means to bow down and be totally dominated by authority and force and power. Well, think about this. We mentioned them a little bit a while ago. There's fallen angels as well. Did you know that? Maybe 
inherent within this little phrase, scene of angels, is not only the good angels. Maybe it's the fallen angels that saw what happened at Calvary, that took a look at it. Notice what happened at the cross. One of my favorite texts of Scripture. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he, hath he risen, quickened you together with him. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means dead in your own sins and excluded from the covenant of God. Hath he quickened you together with him? Having, when, when you receive his life and he quickens you with Christ, when you receive his life, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. But it doesn't stop there. That's what he did for us. Notice what he did at the cross to those fallen angels. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine Lucifer himself and in his hierarchy of demonic spirits looking down and seeing the cross, looking up, looking over, seeing the cross wherever they may have been. And Paul continues after telling us what Jesus did for us on the cross, how he subjugated our sin. It says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The cross was the death nail of the hordes of hell and the principalities and powers. Satan is a defeated foe because God the Son was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, and they got a good look at it on the cross. Scene of angels. Boy, I want to tell you, I love that. I might preach this again next week. Jesus blotted out our sin on the cross. He blotted it out by forgiveness. Took the handwriting of ordinances. You know, Jesus had a signboard on the cross. Well, you have a signboard and it says sinner. And Jesus blotted it out on the cross. He took out the handwriting and it was contrary to you. It wasn't going to let you approach God. It wasn't going to let you get to God, but he took it out. He took it out of the way. He battled and won over Satan. His enemies will be his footstool. So what do you do with this today? Well, come to Jesus. If you don't know him and you're not 100% certain if you died today, you'd go to heaven. Come to Jesus. Come and be saved. If you've sinned, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now and telling you you're a sinner. You've sinned, one sin, and you're convicted about that. You feel bad about it. You experience anxiety about it. It's, it's troubling you right now. Come to Jesus. 
And the way you do that in our church is we're about to stand and sing, and I'm about to stand up front, and you can just walk down this aisle and say, I want to come to Jesus, and we will help you come to Jesus. We'll take it from there. That's all you got to do. Second of all, now listen, don't get me getting ready to go. Don't be getting ready to go. What else do you do with it? Well, if you're saved and you know Christ, why don't you just show up on Sunday and worship? And worship. Show those angels something. Worship. Come in here and say, God, it's not about me. It's about you because you were manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit all victory is mine and I give you all praise and worship amen just come here and worship and be thankful amen and if you're saved and you're a member of First Baptist Church get a mission get a mission that is the invitation for you to come to Jesus so he can forgive you of your sin. Come forward, we're here to help. That is the invitation to worship. Maybe you, you've come to church before and you've, thought of, and, and, and you've entertained every thought that, that the devil has thrown into your mind during the worship service. And you don't pay attention to the songs we sing. And you don't pay attention to the word of God being preached. Well, it's a call for you to repent and say, God, from now on, I'm going to enter into that sanctuary filled with the Holy Spirit so I can give you praise that is your due and get a mission. You come. You come as the Spirit leads. Let's stand. I'm up front waiting. You come on. Father in heaven, what a marvelous and glorious text this is. Thank you that you were manifest in the flesh, that Christ was manifest in the flesh. Thank you that... You were justified in the spirit at the resurrection. And God, thank you that the angels were held at bay as you defeated the eternal foe, our sin, and you gave us new life. Bless this invitation. It's been clearly given. May people respond according to your will and be obedient to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This is Cole Andrews. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. Just wanted to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com.